Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, we are we are in week number two of the story series that we're doing. This is a 31-week series that we are going to go from Genesis to Revelation, and we're going to cover everything in between um, in a bit of a fast-paced manner. But hopefully the, the goal of this whole um, series is that we get an overview of the big picture of what God is doing in, in the Bible. And so hopefully we are going to be able to now see how, how does all these little parts in the Old Testament and New Testament fit together to tell one story. The Bible isn't just a bunch of disjointed stories that happen to be thrown together because they would make a good story. This is purposely put so God would begin to reveal himself to his people and tell a great big story. So we're going to start this week. And um, by the way, if, if you do not have a story book, this is just the NIV translation of the Bible. Uh, put together it is some of the genealogies, some of the Levitical laws, some things like that have been taken out. So it kind of gives, it, it stays with the big picture of the, of the story. Uh, these, we have these in the back. So if you want one, you just go ahead and um, you can go ahead and get one after service or even right now if you want. If you want to just open your story Bibles to the second chapter, or if you have your Bible here, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 12. You can turn there. The This is where it gets a little confusing. So the Bibles that you have in the pews in front of you are the ESV version of the Bible, which isn't the version we're using for the story. They didn't have the story in the ESV version. So if you didn't bring a Bible, and if you are trying to follow along, um, you might just have to watch the words on the screen. So I think, Jamie, are you going to help us out here and read? Jamie's going to read for us this first uh, few pages of the story. And so what this section of Scripture does as we read through Genesis chapter 12 and, and a little bit of 13, it jumps from uh, the story in Genesis to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, which is Hebrews chapter 11 is in the New Testament. And Hebrews chapter 11 gives some commentary on the things that are happening in Genesis chapter 12. So what we're doing is we're getting a bit of a, as the story progresses, we kind of get a flash forward, if you will, of, of the commentary of what's going on in these sections of Scripture. Then we go back to Genesis chapter 12 again. So if you want to turn with me, we're going to begin reading um, chapter 2 or, ver, or, cha, or page 13 of the story. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sari, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Sechem. At the time the Canaanites were in the land, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. 
So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. Now Lot, who was moving with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Marmah at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Great. Thank you, Jamie. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you, God, that you are revealing your plan of salvation, that you are drawing us near to yourself, that you are speaking to us today. Lord, we pray that your word would go forth this morning and produce fruit in our lives. Lord, that you would open our eyes to see how great you are, how majestic you are, and God, our place before you as your people. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. And so last week we began to talk about just the creation of the world and how God in his great power and in his majesty, in his creative nature, just began to speak forth the galaxies and the planets and the oceans and and the mountains and everything in between. God created all of life. And then from there, we see that he created Adam and Eve and placed them in this beautiful garden in Eden. Now in the Garden of Eden... We, we see that Adam and Eve were given a choice to obey God or disobey God. There's a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve chose, were deceived, they chose to disobey God, to rebel against God. And because of that, there's a sin nature that has been imparted to every human being after that. They chose to rebel against God's perfect plan for their lives and instead, instead submitted to their own ways and said, we're going to do our own things and go our own way. Because of that, it's been passed down from generation to generation. As a matter of fact, the very first family with, with Cain and Abel killing one another, or, or Cain killing Abel and going forth from there, being kicked out, then we see it, the, there's an explosion of, of the population on the earth. But what we read is that the population on earth, humankind begin to rebel against God and says all of the inclinations of their heart were wicked all the time. And then we zoom back in then to Noah. Noah is a man who is righteous and walked before the Lord. And so God said, I'm going to preserve Noah, you and your family. I'm going to preserve you and, the, and all the animals on the earth through the ark. And we're going to cause a great flood to come upon the earth and judgment against man's uh, wickedness. That happens. And then as soon as uh, Noah gets off the ark and, and you think, well, everything's good again. Finally, there's been a reboot of humankind. We're, we're in the clear now. Noah decides to go his own way, and he, begin, he plants a vineyard, uh, makes some wine, gets drunk, passes out, wakes up, curses his son, and so it all starts over again. Now, after Noah and his family think, of what's going to happen to humankind? Well, 
we begin to read about the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. It's not in the storybook, but in Genesis chapter 11, we read about the Tower of Babel. And in the Tower of Babel, in this story, humankind unites together, and they say this. They say, let us make a tower for ourselves. It's very similar to the language that God uses when he's beginning to make man. He says, let us make man in our image. And so humankind now is saying, no, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us, let us build a great city for ourselves, and we will be known for the things that we have accomplished. And so all humankind now is in rebellion against God. And God comes down and confuses their language and splits them up across the face of the earth. And from there we see that there are 70 nations that were formed from the Tower of Babel. And then if, if you think the, the lens has gotten, real, has gotten wide and we've got this huge... Now in Genesis chapter 12, it begins to focus down into one man and his family. That's Abraham. And so at the beginning of the, of the, of the chapter, read about it's Abram and Sarai. Now it's, we're going to talk about Abraham and Sarah, the same people, same names, just change a little bit. But God begins to build a nation. God begins to build a nation for a purpose, that this nation would be, would be a light for all the rest of the world to see, that through this nation... God would bring about the, the blessing of all people. The salvation of all people would come through the nation that God was going to build through Abraham. So God came to Abraham and said a few things to him. Now, when we think about going on a trip, we ask a few questions, right? Okay, where are we going? Okay, what route are we going to take to get there? How long is it going to take for us to get there? And then where are we going to stay when we actually get there? So there's all these questions that we ask ourselves before we ever leave on a journey. If you don't have the answer to any of those questions, you're in big trouble, right? You need to find those things out. Where are we going? How are we going to get there? How long is it going to take? Where are we going to stay? All those things. When God came to Abraham and said, I want you to leave this place, he, had, he didn't have any of those questions answered. It was purely by faith that he had to obey God. Not knowing where he was going, not knowing how long the journey was going to take or the route he needed to take or where he was going to stay when he got there. None of those questions were answered. God didn't say, look, let me just spell everything out for you in perfect so you knew, know where you're going and know everything about it. He knew none of those things. He purely, God purely said, I want you to leave. And so this is the, the map of, of Abraham's journey. Again, this is my beautiful... Uh, my beautiful drawing here. You can see A for Abraham, okay? Little stick figure guy. He's in Ur, travels up to Haran with his family, and then from there he travels down with Sarah and Lot and the rest of their family to go down to somewhere around the vicinity of Jerusalem. So this is where this is, this is taking place in history at a time. This is probably about 2,000 years or so before, um, before Christ was born. This is the route that Abraham probably traveled when he, when he did this. So if you're going to build a new nation, if you are going to take a couple and you're going to say, look, we're going to build a new nation of people, what would you want? You'd want that couple to be young, probably just recently married, full of childbearing years ahead of them, lots of energy, probably just a real charismatic couple who can, who can really be the leaders of, of this great nation that you're thinking of building. Well, in this chapter of Scripture, God makes abundantly clear Abraham's age over and over and over again. 
So when God chose Abraham, how old, how old was he when this happened? 75 years old, okay? He's an old man. He's not this young buck anymore. The, the good years at this point are behind him. So God chooses the 75-year-old guy to, to, with his promise of making a new nation. Now, I want to read for us Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, where this promise is made to Abraham. And I want you to notice as we read through this, and I want you to get out your storybooks and begin to underline all the places that we see that says God doing something. God says, I will do this. So I want you to underline that, okay? God said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now let's watch what God does. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth shall be blessed through you. In that small section of Scripture, we see God, He's doing all the work. God's the one who's blessing. God's the one who's making a great nation. God is the one who's providing. God is the one who's caring. God is the one who's sending forth. God is at work the whole time through. And all Abraham has to do, it's, it's really it's quite simple for Abraham because he's not really doing much except just being a vessel for the blessings that God has given to him. He's to pour out to other people. That's all he has to do. He doesn't have to go and, and, and make something great for himself. He's not having to start his own company and, and work hard to, to get it off the ground. God's saying, look, I'll take care of that for you. All I want you to do is to be a pass-through. The blessings that I bestow upon you, that I give to you, I want you to be a blessing to everybody else. And we talked at length this summer about this idea of, of blessing and how it sends us on mission how it doesn't allow us to, to keep things for ourselves, our relationship with God and, and his, his goodness that has been lavished in our lives is to be, is to be a pass-through to other people. It causes us to love and care and show grace. We talked through that a lot this summer. But for Abraham in this, he's simply to be a vessel, simply to be used by God to be a pour-through. Now, why choose the 75-year-old guy who knows nothing about God, who doesn't come from a family who knows anything about God, and a woman who's well beyond childbearing years to start a great nation. Look, when, when, when God came to Abraham, Abraham knew nothing of God. It wasn't like he could go to the Christian bookstore and pick up a Bible and catch up on some reading to find out, okay, what's this God like that's telling me to leave, and what's this God like that I, I can trust? He had none of those things. As a matter of fact, he came from a pagan nation, came from a pagan family. They knew nothing of God. They did not worship God. And here it is. The call comes to Abraham well beyond his childbearing years with a wife who's well beyond her childbearing years. This, for us, begins a pattern of the way that God works. This is what God does. He chooses the least likely person. If, if we were playing a game of Let's start a great nation on the school, in the schoolyard, okay? Abraham would be the last guy picked every single time. He's not the first guy picked in let's start a great nation game. He's the last guy picked. He's too old. He's too tired. The good years are behind him. His wife is too old. None of the reasons, but yet God chooses the least likely person. 
We're going to see a pattern of this. He also chooses people who are imperfect and broken. One of the marks of Abraham's life is we like to think of him as the father of faith. He's also the guy who screws up quite a bit. We're going to see this in his life as a pattern over and over and over again. He's deceiving people. He's doing his own thing. He's not this perfect guy. He's not this guy who's got got this incredibly high moral standard. But God also chooses people that others would pass over. God chooses people who who others would, like I said, pass over quite a bit. And inevitably, inevitably in this pattern, following God means this. Hardship, loss, and suffering. Always. God, in following after God, it inevitably means in all of scriptures, it means this. At some point in this person's life, hardship, loss, and suffering. If we go through Abraham to his children, to Moses, to David, through the prophets, and all the way through the New Testament, Jesus, his disciples, the apostle Paul, everyone connected to it, everyone that had followed Jesus Christ or followed the call of God in their life, it inevitably meant at some point in their life there was hardship, loss, and suffering. Right the way through. Why is that? Why is that the case? It's because this. God loves people, not just projects. God had a great nation to build. That's the project. God's going to build a great nation. But along the way, he's more concerned about Abraham and his life and developing him and changing him and transforming him and causing him to to fall more in love with, with God than ever before than he was concerned about getting the project done. God could have easily said, okay, look, Abraham, you're 75, your wife is 65. We're going to get this thing going, okay? Your wife will get pregnant next year. She'll have triplets. Okay, then every year after that, she'll have triplets for just the next 50 years. And lo and behold, we'll have a massive nation within a few centuries. Didn't happen that way. God, God caused Abraham to wait and to wait and to wait. It's because relationship is more important than outcome. This idea of relationship, of walking with God, is more important than the project ahead. We just talked about God's limitless power in creating the universe. Is anything too difficult for him? For him to start a great nation from a 75-year-old man is not a problem whatsoever. He doesn't need to start that day. He doesn't need to get, things, get the ball rolling because if he doesn't, we're going to be in trouble. God's time frame is much different from ours. In this hardship, loss, and suffering that every single one of these Old Testament heroes faced, it only brings them closer to God. God somehow uses the hardship, loss, and suffering to bring them closer to himself. By the way, that's the pattern for us today. When we think about hardship and loss and suffering, whether it's because of our own mistakes or the mistakes of others or just the, the difficulties of life, I think oftentimes you want to, well, if I just follow God's ways and everything will be perfect. If I just walk in God's ways, I have no problems, no issues. Life will be easy. I'll have blessing. It's, it's all good. And so oftentimes in the scriptures, we see the exact opposite. If you are following God's ways, more than likely you will experience hardship. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, if anyone would come after me, let him 
deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow after me. And where is Jesus heading? He's heading to his death. We're following him to his death. So when we think about following after Jesus Christ, he doesn't paint some, some cheap and, and easy picture of, of all life will be good and easy and, you know, just, it's, it's just going to, everything's going to work out. Jesus paints a little bit different picture. In this, we see a little bit different. But suffering is also a way of uprooting self-dependency. It's a way which uproots our pride and our self-dependency, thinking, hey, that we've got thing, everything under control ourselves. I love to visit people in the hospital, okay? Sounds weird. Fortunately, most of the time I visit people in the hospital is because they're having a baby. So we do a lot of that. But when I visit someone in the hospital and they're laying in this bed and they've got machines hooked up to them and they haven't showered in a couple days and they've got this really awkward gown on that doesn't quite tie in the back and it's just really kind of weird and there's no more pretense, there's no more. This is the real you. This is who we really are. We're dependent. We're weak. No matter what we look like outside of this hospital room, how strong we are, how capable we are to take care of ourselves, what we can do in our own strength, and what kind of a front we can put on in front of everybody, in this hospital room, it's really the real you. You can't take care of yourself anymore. There's, everyone is, is, is forced to take care of you. You've got to be the recipient of everybody's care. No matter how strong you may feel, you're in great need in this moment. So visiting people in the hospital is like, look, this is really who we are. That's what suffering and loss and hardship does. It brings us to the place of who we really are. It confronts us with our, our need for God. It confronts us with, with our weakness and so it helps us to see and helps us to grow closer to God in all those times. Remember, God will use the circumstances in Abraham's life to bring Abraham closer to himself. God isn't just interested in an outcome. He's not just interested purely in making a great nation. He's interested in a man, in a person, in a relationship. That's what is certain. And the same thing is said for us. God is concerned and interested in the relationship that we have with him because it's one of the ways that we exude and show the light of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. God uses these things to purify us. I want to read for us Titus 2, 11 through 14 real quick and we'll get back to Abraham's life. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. He's purifying for himself a people. God's concerned about a relationship. He's not just interested in projects and in, in goals. He's got to reach the, He can accomplish all those things in an instant. What Jesus is working through, what God is working through in Abraham, what he's working through in our lives right now is working on this relationship. That in everything, every hardship that we have, it somehow brings us to the place of saying, God, I can't do this. God, I'm in great need. 
God, I'm unable to accomplish anything right now apart from you, and I need you. And guess what? God meets us where we're at. God meets us where we're at. God is somehow refining and causing us to depend upon him. There, there are people here in this church who are experiencing difficult times right now, whether it's in your marriage or just in your home or at work or in your family. And you need to hear this, that God is interested not just in a project, but in you and your relationship with him. And that he is orchestrating these events as ugly and as painful as it may be to bring you closer to himself. That in all of this, we can throw ourselves at his feet and say, Jesus, like the psalmist says, you are my portion in my cup. Whom, have I, whom do I have but you? We can only say that when he really is the most valuable, important thing in our lives. In the history of Israel, the nation of Israel that God builds, it's the times when things are going phenomenally well and God is providing for all of their needs. That they've, What do they do? They turn from God and go their own way every single time. And in those times when they're in the middle of hardship and loss and suffering, that they cry out to God in the middle of it. God meets them and he answers them. That's, that's the beautiful promise we have from God. He has spoken, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. In all of our hardship, he is with us. He's not forgotten about us. He wants a relationship and he's doing everything it takes to get us to draw near to him every single time. Okay? That's the pattern that we see in Scripture. Now let's look at Abraham's life and see how this unfolds. We're going to do a quick walkthrough of Abraham's life. So this is, this is a condensed version, okay? If you can characterize Abraham's life, you'd say this. It's a life of waiting. It's a life of waiting. So Abraham and Sarah head down to the area around Jerusalem, but lo and behold, there's a famine, right? Great, famine. Not a good thing. It's hardship. So what do they do? They head to Egypt because that's where the food's at. Abraham and Sarah then head to Egypt, and when they get to Egypt, guess what happens? The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, sees Sarah and, and finds out that she's beautiful. And so well, here's, here's the plan. Abraham says, look, Sarah, you tell the king that you're my sister. And that way he'll, he'll spare me. He, if he knows I'm your husband, he'll kill me and take you for himself. But if he thinks I'm your brother, then all's good. So Abraham and Sarah decide they're going to deceive Pharaoh. So they do, they say that. They say, you know what? Instead of trusting in God, instead of trusting that God is going to make a great nation out of them, they, des- they decide to deceive Pharaoh. God reveals that, hey, this, this woman is not Abraham's brother, but it, it's actually his wife, and you've got to make sure you send them on their way with blessings. So he does. They head back to the area up by Jerusalem. Well, Abraham is traveling with his nephew Lot at the time. And Lot, Lot's possessions, Abraham's possessions continue to grow and increase. And the land is not able to hold all of their possessions at the same time. And so they say, let's split up. So Lot decides that he sees this very fertile valley and says, you know what, I'm going to take my, my herds and my flocks and my people, and we're going to go down in this valley where it's very lush and green and very nice, which happens to be near Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they, they separate, they go their own ways. Well, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and a few other countries decide that they're going to war against the kings of another few countries. And in this battle, Lot and his possessions are taken plunder by the, the invading forces, which then makes Abraham have to go 
gather all his men and pursue and take over and conquer the, the plunderers and get Lot and all his family back. Which, at that point, the king of Sodom says, hey, look, man, you, you came and you rescued all the, the plunder and you saved Lot and everyone else and you saved our lives. Why don't you keep all the goods and just give us back the people? But Abraham at this point says, no, no, no. I don't want anyone to say that they made me rich, that they provided for me. I want all the glory, in a sense, to go to God that he provided for all my needs. So Abraham walks away from that without taking anything. Now, 10 years after the promise of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Abraham and Sarah hatch up another scheme, okay? No child has come like God had promised. It's been 10 years of waiting, waiting on God, waiting on God, year after year. It's been a decade now. So here's the scheme that they hatch up. Sarah has got a servant, and Sarah says, hey, here's what we'll do. In order for you to have an heir, to have a son, why don't you marry and sleep with my servant and produce children through her, and that way we'll have, you will have an heir, right? Does that sound like a good idea? Did we just cross over to an episode of Jerry Springer? Uh, I mean, if anyone would have sat down with Abraham before and say, look, look, pal, do you really think this is a good idea? Do you really think this is going to bring peace in your home and, and just really make a good, good over your family? This is going to go well for you? No. Bad idea. Take matters into their own hands. They go, they go their own way. And so, lo and behold, Sarah gives her, her servant over to Abraham as a wife, and they do, they produce a child, and his name is Ishmael. They produce an Ishmael. Now, it causes an incredible amount, as you can imagine, conflict and stress and strain in the family. Sarah and, and now her, her servant girl who's, who produce a, uh, a child with Abraham, it just begins to clash. It's just, it gets ugly fast. And how often do we, as, as we are waiting for God, how often do we really come down and say, you know what, I've waited long enough, something has to be done. I think when, when Michelle and I were first, when Michelle and I were first married, I would, we'd get into conflict. Yes, we'd get into conflict, okay? Um, and we'd get into conflict, and as soon as we got done kind of button heads and, and disagreeing, it's a nice way to put it, we'd disagree, uh, I'd want to say, okay, let's, 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 let's make up, let's, I'm sorry, let's move on past this, let's get on with life. And, and she would say, look, I need to process this. I need to go to the Lord with this. I need to work through this in my own heart before I'm ready to really, really to reconcile our conflict, which to me drove me crazy because I'm like, hey, look, enough of the interruption, let's just get on with life. And so I'd be like, hey, look, the Bible says, don't let the sun go down in your anger, and we need to get this reconciled right now. And you can imagine, was that helpful? No. Wasn't helpful at all. And so it would just create more and more conflict. And instead of me, instead of me trusting in Almighty God that he was at work in her heart, bringing her a place of, of being ready to be reconciled, instead of me trying to play God and say, look, you've got to reconcile with me right now. The Bible says we don't live at, at odds with one another, what we reconcile before we go to bed. I mean, I start laying all the heavy scripture upon her to, to get her to see my, my way and to reconcile and move on with her lives. For me, it would have to mean waiting and trusting in God. And 
lo and behold, usually when, when, we, when I would entrust, in a sense, myself to the Lord, saying, God, you are at work in her heart. I don't need to come with, with a hammer. She would come and say, look, let's reconcile. And God would have done a wonderful work in both of us instead of me trying to force something, in a sense, creating an Ishmael through what I'm trying to do. Now, Abraham waits 10 years, so that was just, he finally had it, him and Sarah, so they, they do that with, 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 with Hagar, Sarah's servant, and create Ishmael. Now, after 25 years of waiting, 25 years, Abraham's now about 100 years old. God shows up again and says, next year you're going to have a son. After 25 years of waiting, he says, you're going to have a son, not through, not through Hagar, Sarah's servant, but through your wife, Sarah, who's now 90. You have a wife. Or your wife, Sarah, is going to have a son. His name will be Isaac. So Isaac is born a year later. Praise God. It's been 25 years of waiting since the promise is given. Now, from there, Abraham goes down to, um, meets another king. His name is Abimelech. And Abimelech, uh, again, Abraham says, look, I don't want Abimelech to know that you're my wife. You're, we'll just say you're my sister again. And so the whole thing happens over again. And, and so on and on. You can see how Abraham, although he's the father of the faith, wasn't this guy who was perfect or morally righteous. I mean, this guy had some serious flaws in his life. Through his deceit with other people, through him not trusting God and, 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 and getting with uh, Hagar, now, all that brings us to this place of probably 15 years after Isaac is born, the son of the promise is born. God comes to Abraham and says this, I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to sacrifice him, and I want you to, to go to Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him there. And so Abraham travels with Isaac and his servants to Mount Moriah. Which, which is the place where the temple is actually built. So they travel to Mount Moriah, and on this mountain, Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain to the top of the mountain, and he builds an altar, and he ties up Isaac. And he lifts the knife to, to sacrifice Isaac. And God says, stop. And so God, he looked over, and he saw a ram caught in a thicket. And he said, that's your sacrifice, not your son. Now I know that you love me and trust me. All along these past 25, now 40 years since the promise, God has been working and developing Abraham to a place of trust and dependency upon God. It's, it's, it's hard for us. It's hard because in some sense, in, this, in the lower story, what's happening is Abraham's waiting and waiting and waiting where is God in all of this? Why is there one hardship after the next? Lot's taken captive. Abraham has to go rescue him. There's a famine, so we have to go to Egypt. Sarah gets taken by Pharaoh. Abraham lives his whole life in tents, not in homes, on property that he never owned, traveling from place to place to place. His life was riddled with hardship. But yet, in the upper story... Right, The lower story is just what we see happening around in this story. In the upper story, God's promises are always right on time. God's promises are always true. 
He's more concerned about developing the father of the nation than he is about building the nation at that point. He's developing Abraham to a man who can be trusted, to someone who can, who can give themselves fully to God, who doesn't take matters into his own hands, but entrusts himself to God. He's the father of nation. He's father of the nation, but God's not concerned about just building the nation. He's concerned for Abraham. Here's where our story fits in. God is concerned, God is passionate about developing you and I in our walks with him, about his people together, not just individually, but together as his people, about developing us into the the people of God through hardship, through waiting, through difficulty. He uses these things to bring us near to himself. These are the very things that God begins to use around us to cause us to depend upon him, to rely upon him, to call upon him, to come into relationship with him, to, call, to depend less on ourselves and more on him. Turn away from our own ways to trust in his ways. He is the source of life. And our problem is often this, that we live in a microwave society. And God is a God of the slow cooker. God's a crockpot God. He's not the microwave God. I was thinking this week how at Bombers, it's a, it's a place down the street that makes phenomenal barbecue. They, they, cook their, they slow cook their meat for 18 to 22 hours. And it's delicious. It's, it's phenomenal. But if you went there and they just threw a slab of ribs in the microwave and brought them out to you in three minutes, it would taste terrible. It'd be awful. In the same way, God is using this time, this waiting, these difficulties, these years sometimes, to develop in us that which there's no other way to develop. This waiting creates within us a dependency and a, and a, and a need for him that nothing else in this world can develop. That's what he is doing. And just like Abraham was completely dependent upon God and his promise, God would provide, God would bless, God would make his name great. In the same way, we are completely dependent upon God as well to do these things, especially in the work of salvation. Commenting on the statement in Genesis chapters 12, verses 1 through 3, the promise of God, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. I want Because he's given commentary on this promise. Galatians 3, 7 through 9. We read this. He says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. So this is the gospel in advance. This is what the gospel is. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul is looking back at this promise that God gave to Abraham, and he's saying, this is the gospel in advance. There is a promise coming to you that all the nations of the world will be blessed through you, that through your lineage, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And we see that in different parts in Israel's history, but ultimately, this promise finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ gave his life 
And as he was on Mount Moriah, on the cross, and the knife came down upon Jesus Christ, there was no other ram caught in the thicket. Jesus was the final and ultimate sacrifice for our sins, through which all the world has the blessing of salvation. We have the opportunity to to know God and to, to fellowship with God and to be called his own simply because of Jesus Christ. We, just like Abraham, are completely dependent upon God to provide for us that which we never could ourselves. Abraham could have never made his name great, never could have earned enough or done enough to make a great nation out of himself, especially being the fact that him and his wife were well beyond childbearing years. He was completely dependent upon Almighty God, just like everyone who's ever walked the face of the earth is. We are dependent upon Almighty God. Our salvation, our life, comes from Jesus Christ alone. He was that sacrifice. He was the way for us to escape punishment. And just like Isaac was taken off the altar and that ram was put on the altar, we escape. We are removed from the wrath and punishment for our sins because Jesus Christ was laid upon the altar. Because he gave his life for us. And in this, we see this, that God is relentlessly pursuing a people for himself. God is relentlessly pursuing. We're going to see as the story unfolds that time and time again, God is pursuing the least likely, the broken, the sinful, the ones who have been passed over. He is pursuing those people for himself. The ones that everyone else forgot about, God says, I've not forgotten about you. I've not turned my back on you. I've made a way and provision for you. We're going to take communion at this point. But I want us just to, as we close, for us in our hearts to have a sense of gratitude for the kindness and goodness of God towards us in Jesus Christ, that we have a Savior, that he has made a way for us that we could never make on our own. Secondly, I want to say this, if we have never surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, if we have never asked him for the forgiveness of our sins, if we have never surrendered our lives to him, today can be the day of salvation. That through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, we can receive forgiveness and mercy and grace. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of your mercy. Thank you for the gift of relationship that you are relentlessly pursuing and drawing near to yourself God I pray that we would surrender and submit ourselves to you all of our hearts and all of our lives in Jesus name we pray